0: What makes me laugh people take that song quite seriously because a lot of people approach me and ask me, did y'all really go to El Segundo? I'm like, it's just a video, pal.
1: I've never been in a desert before, so it was cool. It was cool. Mm-hmm. We saw a dead buzzard. It was nasty. Yeah, it was the cartilage and, <laughs> and the optic nerves.
2: <laughs> Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and in this episode... I explore one of my all-time personal favorite artists. They're considered one of hip-hop's most influential and complex groups, A Tribe Called Quest.
0: I'm Ali Shaheed Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest, and I'm the sound provider of the group. I'm Jarobi, seldom seen and never heard.
1: Hi, I'm Q-Tip. I'm an Aries. I'm a sick puppy. I'm (laughs) Fife.
0: and I rhyme along with him.
2: This ensemble from Jamaica, Queens, was the little brothers of the native tongue movement, but also the second generation of rappers from the borough that birthed hip hop's first mega stars.
1: There's Run DMC, LL Cool J. Um, Fife and I grew up over there 50 Cent, Ja Rule DJ Irv Peppa from Salt and Pepper from over there They were introduced to the world through a very
2: strange song and video They
3: thought it was an imaginary place, it sounded like somewhere really far off, like you know what I mean So Yeah we all knew Red Fox's character Fred G Sanford, the show The Junkyard, the Yeah house It was in, in California, was in Watts yeah. So I always watch. make El Segundo
2: references a tribe called Quest would then take the hip hop culture and the music industry by surprise with tremendous success.
4: People wanted to write a piece on them or wanted to do a photo shoot with them or like they wanted to, to do everything with them.
2: Tribe were the cool kids of music creating a huge list of famous creators as
4: fans. A lot more people coming by the studio, a lot more supermodels, <laughs> a lot more pretty women, a lot more like you know, stars and other rappers and producers and artists.
2: While New York City hip hop was experiencing its first major down period, Tribe kept the lights on by delivering three classic albums, each better than the one before, back to back during the early '90s.
1: I always wanted to make something as close to like the Beatles, or Earth Wind and Fire, as sly as possible for hip hop. You know what I mean? I felt like that those kind of that first album was kind of representative of that kind of energy.
2: However. Despite all of their success, there were some deep-rooted differences that would eventually break the group up, thus ending the special creative energy they had together, leaving fans empty-handed.
4: It became not fun anymore, and getting those guys together became harder to do, like even like it was like a photo shoot, it was like a huge thing to get all three of them, so it's like three separate camps.
2: Then years later, after they were able to regroup and record again, tragedy would strike the group as they would lose a member.
5: When I met Leek Ice. (laughs) Sorry, Malik. (laughs) Sorry, Malik. Uh, He definitely was a little gritty, something off the New York streets.
2: Throughout this backstory episode, you will hear clips from a few interviews with Tribe, plus an interview with an industry veteran, Jeff Sledge who did promotion for Tribe, then ended up being their ANR on their most commercially successful projects.
4: They were definitely highbrow, but it's weird because they were highbrow, but they weren't really trying to be. It's like highbrow people were just kind of attracted to them.
2: This is the backstory of A Tribe Called Quest.
3: It's crazy. I didn't know it was going to be this big. I just wanted to be a celeb in my hood at least be able to come back, give back to the community, things of that nature. But I didn't think it was going to be, you know, everybody in L.A. to Tokyo, knowing our words, by heart, things of that nature. So it's been crazy. It's been a fun ride, though.
2: The beauty of success is the unknown. That was Fife speaking candidly before he died about what his goals were in the beginning of their journey versus the actual outcome of the group. One of the many gems you could learn about success, especially all of the dreamers out there with great ideas. You really never know how or what you're doing will impact the world. Tribe Called Quest were a bunch of kids from Queens who were the first generation hip hop babies watching the culture develop around them, not just in the city of New York, but the borough of Queens, which became a hot spot for the culture. Then after years of absorbing these vibes, we see the birth of Tribe in real time. And when they get their turn to make music, they create a unique, sophisticated sound that resonates globally and inspires several other generations of artists that we would also go on to love.
6: We got our deal. We rapped for Rico Wade. Only thing me and Big had was scenario, cassette. And um, we rapped for days. No choruses, no nothing. We didn't know about choruses. We didn't know about hooks and none of that shit. we just going. And in high school, my first rap name was Jazz because of these niggas. Straight up, like my, it was J H A Z. I don't know how I was thinking I was spelling that shit, but because of, we got the Jazz, like we would sit in high school and be like, man, we love them. In our bio, we didn't even write this shit. They called me the poet and Big Boy the player, or some shit. Like it was like some Southern tribe shit, but we, we didn't even like it. We didn't. We, we just like we just want to rap, but. They want us to be tribes so bad, and we loved them niggas so bad, we was like, okay, we'll, we'll, be, a, we'll be a street truck. We was robbing niggas and stealing cars and shit. So we, yeah, imagine me trying to rob niggas, but it's true. I had a conversation with Tip and it, it shocked the shit out of me. He's become a great friend to me, great communicator to me. Like it's so crazy, like it's so parallel, our lives. And um, one day he said, man, when y'all came out as outcasts, man, he was like, I knew that the tides had changed. I knew rap had changed and I knew what he was talking about because when I see Wayne and Thug, I'm like, whoa, I can't keep up with that shit. (laughs) But it's so dope, man. It's like it's the connection. It's like they're them because of us.
2: That was Andre 3000 from OutKast, another super group who came from humble roots and were influenced by tribe and who would also go on to impact the
7: world. My man, Five Dog. You got anything to say, kid? What's up? You've been kind of quiet throughout the whole interview.
0: Um, peace to Philly. You know what I'm saying? Cheesesteaks is all that. You know, good luck to my man Allen Iverson.
7: All so love. Okay. Him. You still, a, you still a Knicks fan? No doubt. We okay. got I'm not Okay. <laughs> I'll be out here. Though. And you got, the, uh, you got the Randall Cunningham hookup, huh? You, you know what? You still I, a Randall didn't, I,
0: didn't, I was looking for a Ricky Waters because that's my man. Right. I'm a big 49er fan, so it's my man. But they ain't have anymore, but I got this. Plus, Cunningham name ain't on
2: it. One attribute of Fife, which was unlike most artists during this time, was that he loved sports. He was a fanatic of great athletes and would never hesitate to sprinkle that into his rhymes. So to understand A Tribe Called Quest, we have to go back to the borough that birthed them and the socioeconomic forces that helped create hip-hop. As explained in several episodes of the Backstory Podcast, please go back and reference all of the episodes. There's a lot of interesting stories you can learn about the culture. For all those hip-hop aficionados out there, grab the exclusive Backstory Podcast Crossword Tee. It's a t-shirt that celebrates some of the biggest Backstory episodes. I buy a lot of t-shirts, and the one thing that drives me crazy is quality. So first, t-shirts are superior quality. And it's a really cool design that celebrates some of the biggest Backstory episodes. Log on to GetTheBackstory.com right now and see for yourself. A portion of the proceeds from each shirt sold will be donated to Feeding America to help families in need. That's GetTheBackstory.com. Get the Backstory Crossword T now. And if you're new to the Backstory podcast, all of the episodes are historic time capsules. So go back and check out some of the other episodes and learn about the culture. Get the Backstory.com. Hip-hop got its start in the Bronx, one of the five boroughs in the New York City area. As the culture exploded across New York City, different pockets of artists started to develop and would thrive off of their section of the city. Each neighborhood had their own sound and vibe. In the early years of hip-hop, the Bronx would deliver the Sugar Hill Gang, who would have rap's first huge hit, Rapper's Delight. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five would be rap's first supergroup to have major success. The Soul Sonic Force, created by hip-hop icon Afrika Bambaataa, who literally transformed gang life and violence into hip-hop culture rapping singing graffiti then years later you have boogie down productions who would be the second generation of hip-hop to name a few harlem would deliver curtis blow who would have rap's first solo gold single the breaks harlem would also deliver beatbox legend and greatest entertainer dougie fresh the treacherous three cool Dee, who himself would also go on to tremendous solo success Brooklyn would come online a little later and give the culture Big Daddy Kane, who was one of hip-hop's second-generation stars and one of hip-hop's first sex symbols. MC Light, one of the first great female MCs, and of course the legendary Notorious B.I.G. and current legend Jay-Z. Queens, which for some, especially if you lived in New York City, was the borough over there, would not only have its say in hip-hop, It would have historic, explosive results. Rap's first mega group, Run DMC. Rap's first teen solo star, LL Cool J. Rap's first mega female group, Salt and Pepper. Rap's first super producers, Larry Smith, who was from Hollis, Queens, and Molly Maul, who was from the infamous Queensbridge Projects, which would also deliver Nas. And then, of course, a tribe called Quest. All of these artists had tremendous impact around the world, but it all started in the most distant New York City borough, Queens. So here's a little history. New York City is considered one of the great melting pots of the world. During the turn of the 20th century, New York was a major destination for immigrants escaping Europe, mainly due to religious persecutions, economic instability, and worsening political climates. These immigrants seeked out the dream of America as a land of prosperity. Starting in the late 1800s, millions of immigrants would start arriving on ships into New York Harbor, arriving at Ellis Island, passing the Statue of Liberty. Most of the immigrants were Irish, Italian, German, and Jewish, who in the 1930s were fleeing Hitler's murderous regime and Nazi expansion in Europe. These immigrants would increase the population of New York City by millions, making it America's largest city. For African Americans whose ancestors were forced into slavery, and brought to the South here in America to serve as free labor and underwent 400 years of cruelty. Slaves in America dealt with the worst conditions and treatment in the history of humanity. The history of America will forever be changed as forces in the North wanted to abolish slavery while forces in the South did not want to give up the free labor and the economic power of having slaves. This will be a tipping point for America. Do we move forward and expand slavery or end it? This would also lead to the American Civil War, which would last for four years during the presidential term of Abraham Lincoln, who lobbied to end slavery, which would tragically end up costing him his life. When the 13th Amendment of the Constitution was ratified in 1865, the reaction by southern states who wielded superior economic power over their northern neighbors due to the free labor of slavery was sheer anger and rage. Sound familiar? After slavery, quote unquote, ended, many of these southern states enacted crippling Jim Crow laws that harshly affected people of color. The creation and terror of the Ku Klux Klan, plus other significant episodes of white mob terrorism and thousands of lynching would create the Great Migration as over 6 million African Americans between 1910 and 1970 fled the South for better opportunities and a break from racist terrorism. Several large cities in the North and West would see the massive growth of the African-American population, none more than New York City. Already a melting pot for immigrants from all over the world, African-Americans who would come to New York would mainly migrate to the Bronx, the Harlem section of Manhattan, and Brooklyn. Queens was not ideal, mainly because it was far away from the center of action of the city, but also because of its affluency. Moving to Queens meant you had some money. As the borough continued to expand and grow, that would, however, also change as African Americans would migrate to Queens from the late 50s to the 80s, growing the population from 3% of Queens in the 1950s to 21% by 1990. Jamaica, Queens was one of the first areas to have a large African American population. But with that growth came racial resentment, white flight, and white racist terror. Many were surprised and shocked by the overt racism of former President Trump. To many Americans, he was from a very diverse, progressive city. I would tell you that he was from Jamaica Estates and Queens. I was born in New York City, and most of my family still lives in New York City. So I experienced a lot of the city as a child. And for anyone who knew about this borough or experienced the racism, which at times was just as bad as the South, And these same races were immigrants or descendants of immigrants themselves.
8: This is the ghetto of South Jamaica, also in Queens, just three miles from Rosedale. It's a familiar story. Once residential and almost all white, now South Jamaica is the home of 70,000 people, most of whom are poor and black. Almost half of them earn less than $4,000 a year. 30,000 live on welfare. As the neighborhood tipped, the crime rate soared. Even closer to Rosedale, the very next community, in fact, is Laurelton. In the last five years, it's gone from 35% to 65% black. So when they look north and west, the whites in Rosedale see coming the very changes they once fled.
2: It's no secret how real estate agents and banks will manipulate housing inequities in America. An upwardly mobile African-American family wants to move to a better neighborhood. They have the financial qualifications. However, sometimes not given a mortgage or they're paying a lot more than a white family would pay. You constantly hear the term white flight when a minority moves into a white neighborhood. Now, New York City is a melting pot, but it is also one of the most expensive cities to live in America. And that so-called white flight becomes more difficult.
1: This is something that someone dreamed up that we have to mingle. I don't really think that's life. I think we have basic differences. Our lifestyles are entirely different. If
0: I don't feel that I want to mingle with blacks, there's no law in the world that can make me. The rights of white
9: people in America have been taken away from them. The politicians are taking the rights of the white people away and giving it to the minorities. I move
0: from here, I'm going to run into the same problem five years from now, maybe. And, you know, there's no place to go.
5: We worked hard for what we got. Nobody's ever given us anything. And uh, we're not going to just back down and lose it. We're not going to, you know, blacks are trying to come in. We're not moving. We're not going to run like white people have been doing for years.
2: As the African-American population started to grow in these Queens communities, especially the affluent African-Americans, they would see some of the same patterns of Southern white terror
8: in the North. In 1971, a score of men and teenage boys using axes and picks nearly destroyed a house reportedly bought by a black man married to a white woman 200 residents stood by and watched since then more than 10 acts of violence have been aimed at the few blacks living in rosedale the tension escalated with the coming of the spencers in the summer of 74 tony and glinda spencer bought this seven room house on 136th avenue before the spencers moved in their house was set on fire with gasoline they moved anyway on new year's eve day a year ago while the spencers and their sons slept a pipe bomb exploded on the porch and smashed through the windows of the house Police said the bomb was intended to wipe out the family. Attached to the bomb was a note that read, "Nigger be warned. We have time. We will get your firstborn first."
2: So the Spencers, after their house was firebombed, instead of showing them support, some of their so-called neighbors protested their very existence and right to live in that community. And the racist vitriol was not just from the adults, but also the children.
1: People know that white and black people are never going to get along, so they yeah, should no just way. stay stay apart, you know? Common sense. They just shouldn't try and get together because they just don't like each other, and they never will.
2: What do you think of black people? I don't like them. Why? I really
4: don't. Because
0: I, I just think that they're always looking out to make trouble. They never want to be friends. It's the truth, man. If they live in most, you're only going to find them all over the streets and everywhere. That's right. If they're going to be starting up with everybody because if one starts to
4: look at Moseley, the whole packs coming. No potter of there, we just wanted a white neighborhood. No blacks at all.
2: As you can hear, the racial tensions were high. This is how deep it was. There was actually an organization created to ensure houses in Laurelton, Queens, will be sold to white people.
8: We're very selective. Very selective. So nice. You know, even, even the people that are showing the house are doing their
0: part to keep Rosedale the way it is because they could probably sell for a couple of thousand dollars
8: more if they sure. want. But seeing that we bring the right people in are going to help keep Rosedale just the way it is. A beautiful, white, ethnic community. When a white owner is sold to blacks, Rohr has followed that family into their new neighborhood demonstrated outside their home and told their new neighbors that this family sold to blacks want to show off your love for hip-hop
2: get the exclusive backstory crossword tea and help feed families in need not only is it a great quality tea it is a really cool design especially if you're a hip-hop head Log on to GetTheBackstory.com right now and get your T-shirt with a portion of proceeds from every shirt sold going to Feeding America. Get the T-shirt and take the Backstory podcast with you wherever you go. That's GetTheBackstory.com. As hip-hop started to develop in the Bronx, in the communities of Jamaica, Hollis, and Laurelton, young people were creating their own music that would soon expand across the city and then the world. Ali Shaheed Muhammad talks about New York and how the city helped create hip-hop.
5: New York City is such a different culture. You have, like, this really small city, and you have, like, 8 million people from all different ethnic backgrounds, and there is an air of progressiveness to it, but at the same time, you know, there's certain aspects that are covered and are oppressive, and it's, it's kind of a um, weird Dynamic and a paradox to for that to exist, where you have this sort of sophistication and a sort of advanced way of being communal and really embracing. You know, you can have neighborhoods where it could be mostly Italian, but you got you know blacks and Puerto Ricans in there, and everybody's kicking it. And um, there's so much happening there, and it's kind of hard to really explain. But it's just this tension that existed because so much has come through New York City that may seem to be on the cutting edge of this sound, you know, of just life in general, of the civil rights movement was different in New York than it was in the South. So it's just all these different things and you have these structures of buildings where most of the country things are spread out and you got space at least, like. In New York City, when we're living in these tenements, it's tension, so it's just kind of like a weird kind of paradox between the two. You have, like, financial mammoths just across the bridge, but in these tenements and in these, like, squeezed-up buildings and, you know, uh, neighborhoods without grass, neighborhoods without trees. It's the concrete jungle. It just creates a certain sort of environment for life, and um, I guess it came out in the music. You know, I think when we were making our music, which was different than I want to say, like the hip hop generation before us, which for me is only like a four year kind of like four to seven year kind of span. And it was way different than that. Like everyone was coming with the James Brown was killing it. And we were kind of like on that vibe way early. Queen's ascension to hip hop dominance was a
4: surprise to many. Industry vet Jeff Sledge. Queens is what's in the, called the two-fair zone. So it's really hard to get to if you're not driving. And nobody drove yeah. back then, so it's kind of far. People weren't going out there because, number one, it, like you said, it's far. Number two, you were, like, out of your element because it's like, yo, I'm mad. Like, I'm, if something jumps off, like, I'm done because I can't get nowhere. There's no even train right. to run to. So it was right. kind of, but it was interesting because because of that, they were developing their own thing that that most of the other girls had no idea was existed way out there in Jamaica and Hollis. But again, it was so far from the Bronx and everything else it was like nobody even knew it existed. So when when DMC was kind of like the first ones to really kick in the door for Queens, yep. you know, it became a thing where like who the hell are these guys? You know, and they, they dress different right. than everybody else at that point. They were wearing all the leather and the hat, you know, and the gazelles that wasn't the look. The look was like the Melly melanin look with the beads and the, you know, braids and feathers and the <laughs> punk rock spikes. And yeah. <laughs> I used to call it
2: the hip hop. Um people. Those, those
4: people. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. so it was a whole different energy that they brought to it. And they, and people don't remember now because it's, you know, four thousand years ago. But when one DMC first came on the scene, like people hated them. Like people, they were they were outcasts. It was like who are these dudes? This things corny. This things is whack. Right. Blah blah blah. Put out a song called "Here We Go," which was them performing at the Disco Fever because yeah. at the Disco they were like people were like kind of like who the fuck are these guys? And they were and you listen right. to the record. Cause it's live. If you listen to the record, the beginning of the record, like it's live. Jay is crack, scratching and everything,
2: yeah. and, and it goes a little something like, like this. this. And you hear yeah. the crowds
4: not really sing much because they're kind of staring right. at them, like who the fuck are these right. dudes? But then Run right. says, "Um, cause it just made the motherfuckers up last night." And you hear the crowd go, "Oh!" oh! So like oh, that, that was yeah. like they made their way in, you know. So I'm saying all that to right. say Queens was definitely like on, like over there, and nobody was paying attention to them. But like you said after Run came, especially because they became international stars. It just flooded the gates for for Tribe and LL and all these other kids coming out of Queens, which is just blowing up the spot.
2: So while all this was happening during this time period in St. Albans, Queens, close friends Jonathan Davis, who would eventually become Q-Tip, and Malik Taylor, who would become Fife, were soaking up the music history in real time.
1: My sister took me to my first block party right in the back of Fife's grandmother's house. I was six, so... My memory, I, I'll never forget it. And that was like my first introduction and the first person I, I spoke to about it the next day was Fife. I was like, yo, was you over at your grandmother's house? Did you hear all that music that they was playing over there? <laughs> he was like, nah, I was over there. Uncle Like, what happened, what happened? And we would just like talk about music on the phone. You know what I'm saying? When well, we found out that in our neighborhood that there was a one DMC walking and breathing like blocks away and LL. Oh lived right by the sundew factory and when he said on the record my name is cool j i'm from, from the, the rock. rock me and fife we lost it
2: they would put together their rap persona by studying the greats of that time
1: other cats who was around before they was doing it but modi's shit was just clean and he was saying shit you know what i mean you know that influenced L O and l was from around all way in, in Queens, I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, St. Albans. And they was like the t- right over there on, in Hollis. And um, them, Run DMC, grew up in my na- Well, I grew up in their neighborhood. <laughs> it was Run DMC, LL Cool J, Fife and I grew up over there, 50 Cent, Ja Rule, DJ Irv, Peppa from Salt and Peppers from over there.
2: Q-Tip would also start formulating his production skill set By using cassette tapes.
1: Yeah, I started out DJing, you know, as a kid, probably like around 11, 12. I started out MCing actually, but 11, 12, like the DJing thing was hand in hand because it was the DJ was the king. And um, I would make. Pause tapes, which was a big thing for kids back in the '80s, to do. If you like, had ideas for music because we didn't have any setups, we didn't have any track machines, we didn't have any of that stuff. And I was lucky enough that mine that we had in the house was a dub one. So, and my dad was a huge like record collector and jazz enthused and stuff. So, I just started making pause tapes and stuff like that.
2: As they got into their teen years. And then entered high school, Q-Tip met
5: Ali Shaheed Muhammad. I got a little bit of a reputation in the neighborhood for DJing. And I don't even know how Q-Tip discovered that. He and I met in in junior high school and he had said to me, I got this crew, I heard you, you know, you're pretty good. Why don't you make me a, a mixtape? I was like, okay. So I made the tape and I don't remember what I put in there, but I had mad records, so he liked it and that's how things kind of formed. It was the beginning
2: of the formation of tribe, as neighborhood friend Jerobe joined as well
1: we all went to high school together so you know my neighborhood had all of these MCs back then you'd have to go in New York City you'd have to go to your zone high school and my neighborhood was pretty tough my zone high school was Andrew Jackson and Andrew Jackson I remember that shit just one of the most craziest high schools and I was like I am not going in so um I wound up going to Murray Bertram High School which was like like a specialized high school was for business careers you had to get like recommendation to get in there and have like a B average or all that shit so I managed to like get in there and um, when I got there I went to freshman orientation and I first met Brother J. Brother J was the lead MC of this crew called the X-Clan which was like popping back then and um, i met him and then i met shazam who was africa from the jungle brothers and mike g who was also from the jungle brothers and met him near his uncle was red alert famed uh, new york city dj from the Zulu nation and i met ali in bertram as well it was just a lot of mcs up there and you know they we did this in high school too we did the promo that was the first record I Africa and I produced that record together and uh, it was the first record I did I was 17 Ali's uncle worked for Columbia Records as a promotion guy and he also played bass And he was like the cool uncle whatever he smoked cools and shit and he'd bring home like public enemy records and all that shit and bring home like whatever Columbia swag he, had. he also had a four track machine cause he played bass so I would take my pause tapes over there and I just start messing with the four track machine. I first got over there probably like 85, I was fifteen. And the first two records I bought over there was this record called Ripe and Benita Applebum. And I was fifteen.
3: I came from the battle era, you know what I'm saying? Coming up in the streets of Queens and whatever. You had to be ready at all times. Like you could be coming out your house getting ready to go to school. And they run up on you, look, yo, let's get it. so that's where my aggressiveness came from. Q-Tip and Chris Lighty, rest in peace. Um, Mike G in Africa from the Jungle Brothers, as well as my boys from Dayla. they pretty much taught me song structure, how to write songs. You know, the whole 8-bar hook, 16-bar hook, that type of thing. Because you leave it up to me, my dumb self would have been trying to battle for a whole album. Those guys definitely took me under their wings and, you know, helped me out.
2: Once A Tribe Called Quest came together as a group, They aligned with a powerful crew of MCs from a variety of backgrounds in the New York City area. The Native Tongues was a collection of amazing MCs. The Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, who were already a platinum success via their groundbreaking debut album, Three Feet High and Rising. Also in the Native Tongues were Queen Latifah and Moni Love, all built around one of commercial radio's first hip-hop star DJs, the legendary DJ Red Alert. Again, anybody who knows anything about New York City, Red Alert was like the first radio DJ to really like share the music and the culture. And his show on Friday and Saturday nights were legendary. And one of the people who inspired me to get into media, to get into broadcasting and to share my love for hip hop on the radio. The Native Tongue crew would carve out their own lane with huge hits in the late 80s and early 90s. They had their own sound and vibe, unlike any other collectives. This is common speaking on their influence.
9: I first got introduced to Native Tongue through the Jungle Brothers and and Red Alert. You know, one of my guys would bring Red Alert tapes back. And then they they had the Jungle Brothers and actually De La Soul plug plug tuning. But, you know, that was Native Tongue introduction to me. And then I I got to hear Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, and then eventually Black Sheep, Moni Love, Queen Latifah. Like for me, that that whole crew was—they had people that I identified with because you know I don't feel like any of those, you know, from what I can see, none of those kids came from like a a super high economical background. But they found their identity and a uniqueness about them, even coming from the hood, coming from the, whether it was ghetto or middle class in the city, wherever they came from—Queens, Long Island, you know—they they brought something that where you could be around even the most hood dudes and be like, man, I'm, I'm rocking my, you know, like Dave looked like he was like a prince. Like he was like influenced by a prince or something, duh, from Daylight, True Goy the Duh. And like Jungle Brothers was wearing the bees and, and, and doing, saying we making jungle music. That was like courage, you know? So I identify with them because like being a teenager and sometimes being into something that is different, you kind of scared to do it. Cause your homies be like, man, like what you doing, but then you know you, you can you can go around and sing something like like, like Buddy and, and say it talk about you know that's talking about like you know sex in a different way, and you could be different and be celebrated. And I think Buddy was like like a, a, the apex and like the height of of Native Tongue in a way that you did get to see all that talent together and them having fun. And I really think that the Native Tongue artists brought a certain not only progressive sound, but they brought a certain fun to to hip-hop that, and hip-hop was, you know, it was other artists doing fun stuff, but it was just like a, like I said, a positive vibe about the native tongue and each, each act that existed in that, and, and it still was just fresh.
2: As they were making music together, there was also an intense rivalry to outdo one another. We were just a bunch of kids
3: who enjoyed being around each other, at each other's sessions, two days in a row without going home, things of that nature. It was just a fun time for us and we were learning from each other. You know what I mean? Not only that, it was very competitive. As much as we loved each other, it was like, yo, that is hot. Now we gotta go in the studio at our own session and smash that, you know what I mean? But um, the only thing that I regret as far as native tongues was, we had an opportunity to really make it big and we didn't really Capture it when it was there for us, so it was like by the time RZA and Wu Tang came about, they knew exactly what they were doing. So, we should have been doing what they ended up doing. Chris Slider made us catch him real quick. Yo, y'all can't be wasting this money, y'all gotta get it while it's hot. Thank goodness we were able to get it during the golden era, but as far as the whole native tongue collective, it should have been a little more major than it was.
2: Tribe hired Red Alert to be their first manager. And again, during this era, Red Alert was the top hip-hop radio DJ in the world. Tribe would sign a demo deal in 1989 with Geffen Records. They would deliver to Geffen a five-song demo, which featured a quirky little song called I Left My Wallet in El Segundo. Geffen actually declined to do anything with Tribe, but also allowed them to shop for a deal elsewhere. During this era, too, Geffen turned down Wu-Tang. They turned down a lot of different artists. During this period, Tribe definitely stood out and they were way ahead of the forthcoming changes happening to hip-hop in the 90s. Ali Shaheed Muhammad talks about the early influences of the group.
5: And hip-hop, like, it was so new, and how to do things was so new. You didn't really have a blueprint, but we idolized groups like the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, and we had learned that Jimi Hendrix kind of went to Europe and kind of, like, did a jump off before things kind of came back here to the States and caught this wave and we were fortunate to have uh, certain people in the music industry kind of pay attention to us because of the Jungle Brothers, because of De La Soul and the success that those two groups had to want to you know see us um, be catapulted in, in a proper way and we were like let's do something crazy like let's go to London. We just wanted to go to Europe and have it documented and um it was interesting. Tribe received numerous
2: offers from several labels, but settled with the independent label Jive Records, who had had a track record of success with hip-hop artists. Jive was the home of Boogie Down Productions. Then krs won as a solo artist. Prior to that, they were a very successful launching pad for Too Short and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, who had hip-hop's first double album with multi-platinum sales. Jive understood the culture and had a formula for success. Once Tribe started working on the first album, it was the production mind of Q-Tip that now having resources was
1: unleashed. The producer side of me, I tend to really lean on the music. And then I I think it's a challenge for me to kind of become a part of the music or become an instrument in it, but still kind of hold to the traits of, I guess, when I'm emceeing, of emceeing and lyricism and all of that. But I really try to let the music guide and, and dictate.
2: In 1989, Jive released their first single, Description of a Fool. This was a jazzy, eclectic track featuring a Roy Ayers sample. The song didn't have much of an impact, but it would end up on their debut album. This was sort of the warm-up. On April 10th, 1990, Jive Records, with no fanfare or hype, released their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Path of Rhythms, while simultaneously releasing a very strange title single and video for I Left My Wallet in El Segundo.
1: When we write, I don't think we write to
5: just, like, sort of, like, preach to people too much. It's a satire, you know, um, We try not to bog people down and make them feel stressed about a certain subject.
0: We believe our listeners to be a little bit more
1: intelligent,
0: so we do a little bit more
1: subliminal. You know, we do it in our dress and like certain things that we say and even the music, you know, has the Afrocentric feel. So it's not like we just thrust it at people.
5: It's there for people to decipher.
2: The single El Segundo was inspired by a bit from the classic TV show Sanford and Son.
5: It's something that Fred Sanford used to say, El Segundo, Like he would, he would say phrases like he was gonna. I don't know, knock, knock, Lamont into Elsa Gundo. We all knew, you know, Red Fox's
3: character, Fred G Sanford. The show, the Junkyard, the yeah, house, it was in Watts. It was in
5: California, it was in Watts. Yeah, so I always make Elsa Gundo references. Mm. So we didn't know it was a real place. He knows a real yes. place, but then that's just you know, Two Tips Genius you know, and taking, grabbing that and then adding something even more abstract to it, you know, and so he left his wallet in it. and the story unfolds. It's just, it's about the group in a in a weird way.
2: This was an interesting intro to Tribe, especially the video. It probably was confusing to fans once you got the body of work they released. In fact, many weren't receptive to the group at first. As a first-generation hip-hop head and college student at the time, People's Instinctive Travels was a breath of fresh air. The music, the beats, the lyrics. I can vividly remember the first time listening to this album. It wasn't what I was expecting. College students from across the country were the first audience to really connect with Tribe. Any college party you would go to, there was some Tribe playing. Clearly there was something different about this group, especially culturally in hip-hop at the time. They were clean, sophisticated hip-hop with an Afrocentric lean. I mean, during that era, we were wearing Afrocentric patches around our necks, especially on college campuses. The album starts out with Push It Along, sort of the calm before the storm. The beat to this track was different, with a jazz sample. Lucky Lucian was track two, a long intro with another dope beat. And then you get to track four. That's where most hip-hop heads fell in love with Thrive. This was the aha moment we were tapping into something different. That track was Footprints, and it hypnotically reels you
4: in, Jeff Sledge. So I remember when <clears throat> the try, first track album came out, I remember listening to it on the train going home, and the first couple records was cool. I was like... This is- and then uh what's the record with um dun, 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 uh what's the record oh yeah yeah with the, with with, 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 yeah, with the yes 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 um I, I cannot believe i can't remember the name of that record but when, when that came yeah. on when that beat dropped changed everything it was like yeah. i was like oh, oh
7: shit yeah.
4: okay yeah. these guys on some other yeah. shit then there was
2: Another hypnotic track, Bonita Applebaum, which was sophisticated, sexy hip-hop before we even knew what that was.
5: That song was made when we were 15 <laughs> years old, so you got to understand the mind of a 15-year-old. It's like you in high school, so it's just, you know, an infatuation. You, you know, like, I'm pretty sure there's 15-year-olds out there right now scribbling on a notepad about the girl in the next desk. Like, mm, thus came Bonita Applebaum.
2: Can I Kick It, Youthful Expression, Mr. Muhammad. This album went viral in that era, first on college campuses, then around the country. So what was Jive's initial strategy with Tribe's first album,
4: Jeff Sledge? Jive did kind of put it out. They just kind of like, oh, let's see what happens kind of thing, you know, and they put it, put the record out. And like you said, El Segundo did cool, and there was kind of like a buzz on these kind of cool guys. And El Segundo, they had the, you know, dashikis on, and they had, like, they looked very different from who they actually were. You know, they, they definitely did not dress like that. <laughs> you
2: know that was such a left field. Left field. Like, like when you listen to the album, <laughs> like, like I wonder if people didn't give them a chance because Elsa
4: Gundo was like, oh, they're a bunch of weirdos. They, what is that? Exactly. So when, right. when they did, Beneath need apple bomb. And can I kick yeah. it? When they did can those, they were dressed like themselves. Like, they were regular, you know what I'm saying? And they had, like, their, their friends in the video and stuff like that. And so it, it definitely helped connect them to the kids at the time, like, you know, high school and college kids at the time. And so that's when Job kind of realized, especially Benny and Applebaum, that was a big record, obviously, and that, that job realized then, oh, holy shit, we really got something here. And just Tribe had, had this thing where, like, again, these cool tastemaker people were just naturally attracted to them. On their own, you get like Spike Lee wanting to shoot a video or like, Rosie Perez is c- popping up at the studio or like some supermodel girl coming through just just to hang out. Like they just, just had a thing that people were very attracted to, whatever that energy was that they had. And Jive recognized that. I think after Benita Alba Bomb, was like, holy shit. And then definitely like, OK, we're going to put a lot more money and energy into the next album, which became, you know, the low
2: income. People's instinctive travels will go gold gaining a 5-mic rating from the source, which carries so much weight in that era, and helped grow their base of fans. A tribe called Quest was ushering in a new sound for the culture in 1990.
1: I always wanted to make something as close to like the Beatles, or Earth, Wind and Fire, as Sly as possible for hip hop. You know what I mean? I felt like that those kind of that first album was kind of representative of that kind of energy. And to kind of really not purposefully try to fit into something, just be yourself. It wasn't until around that time I was making an album that I think I was reading a, a miles davis interview and he was talking about like how the musicality of space and how space is used and i felt like at that at that moment you know hip-hop was 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 Still, fig- we were still figuring out ourselves and getting our, you know, we were still like young fawns and stumbling a little But So I was just like, man, it's, it's what's between the, the notes that makes it stick out. Like, that's why the Bonita style, when I first did Bonita, it was a straight rhyme. And then I came back to it maybe like a few months later and I just kind of broke it down like a conversation because I just started thinking about space. The reaction was pretty good. You know, and it, it caught people off guard. I felt good because as a kid, I would be in the streets and I'd hear it come out of people's cars because that's how everybody was moving or whatever. You hear it like coming out of people's radios. You hear the album, the radio stations started playing it. then when you would go and travel abroad and you see that it was happening kind of all over. So it was just a great feeling.
2: Jive Records was now glowing off of the success of people's instinctive travels. But the best was yet to come. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe
4: Cole. We are going to DC. I think to, to, to BT because BT was in DC at that time, right? Yeah. So we went to BT. I guess to do like rap, rap city, or Teen summit, or you know one of the shows that was on at the time. And so we're checking in the hotel, and the guy checking us in is a black cat, and he's um a little solemn, right? And he knows his tribe, but he's just kind of still a little like solemn. I'm like, yo, what's up? What's happening, bro? He's like, oh, well, y'all ain't heard, huh? Like Magic Johnson just announced he got AIDS, man. Like die, quitting basketball. Well, you know, and Fife literally starts bawling. Wow, because Fife loved. Like we went to the All Star game together. Like uh, this is my guy, man. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, we, when it was his Phoenix, nope. so he starts bawling because Magic. He Magic was like his favorite player. And right. we again, we we get hit in the face. We didn't know anything because we were on a plane. Right. It's not like now where you got your phone and all that stuff. You know. Um, and he starts bawling at the at the counter because we all thought Matchup was going to die. You know, fortunately he didn't. But I just remember like how much that touch and affected, you know, Fife, to hear that. If all of us would like to hear that news, it really like shook him to his core. Like that, you know, his favorite guy was like maybe not going to be here.
2: You know what? I'll never forget that day as well either. Magic Johnson's HIV announcement shook everyone to their core. As Tribe celebrated their debut album, other aspects of the group were about to change, and we may have never experienced the follow-up Tribe projects. The fate of the group and the impact of the second album almost didn't happen. About a month after their first album's release, Fife found out that he was a diabetic and seriously considered leaving the group. This would be a monumental moment in their journey. As Q-Tip convinced him to stay in the group but also to give him more responsibility and encourage him to step up. Jerobi would start recording verses for the low-end theory, but would quit the group to pursue his passions for culinary arts. Usually when you have this kind of disruption, that would be it. Creative energy is fragile and has to be cultivated properly. And any slight change to that chemistry can destroy the creative forces that give you amazing art. It's a tightrope. In the summer of 1990, Q-Tip appeared on the retro D-Light track, Groove is in the Heart, opening up Tribe to a global audience. Groove would become one of the biggest club songs in the world. The single was number four on the pop charts, and you couldn't help but notice the distinctive voice of Q-Tip stamped in many people's heads. So as Tribe started recording their follow-up album, the winds of change internally would give them a creative spark. The interesting thing about their first album from an MC standpoint, that it was clearly all about Q-Tip. He led on all the tracks. He was on every song and he produced the tracks. Fife wasn't that impactful as an MC on the first album, which could have been one of the reasons why he thought he should leave when he found out he got sick. But after Q-Tip rallied the troops, as they recorded in 1990 and 91, things came together for the second album. And on this album, we were getting a whole different Fife.
4: It came down to, like, simple hip-hop shit. Like, people thought Fife was whack on the first album. They thought he was whack. They thought he was just kind of there. They just, you know, Q-Tip did most of the vocals on that first album. Fife had a few verses, right. but Q-Tip definitely, definitely dominated. And Fife got a, you know, a bee in his bonnet, for lack of a better term. It put a battery in his back, like, oh, you niggas think I'm whack? And so he really dug in and and you know, honestly, tipping them and pushed him too, like, yo, man, on this next album, we want it to be more of a, you know, one in one against one, the more of a cohesive thing. You know, so we're right. gonna like you have to step up because you're gonna have to do a lot more work on this album, the Low End Theory, than you did on the last one. And right. he took on the challenge. That's really that's really how it went. He took on the challenge and he dug in and he was he would be in the studio every day just writing, writing 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 just writing writing all the time and he was always ready to go like when it was his time to record he was on time he was ready on point he would knock it out like he was just something clicked in his head where he was just like not just his ego from people thinking he's whack but i think he's like yo i also don't want to m- blow an opportunity here so let me just get my shit together and really step up and show people what I'm what I'm really made of
1: when I heard Straight of Compton I was just like wow and I remember driving with Ali I was like yo we gotta make some shit like th- like this like to hear that shit and we just we were kind of like one of the, one of the few people in the, in in New York riding around listening to that. the energy of it, and they were dealing with dynamics as well. And it had it was frenetic, but the way, but Dre is such a master, like the way that it was laid out. He took what PE was kind of doing, but he got to that whole bomb squad mentality a little bit before, and he just the tapestry that he laid out for those things. It was just still to this day, like I just get chills after you hear all. The frills, the musical frills of that album, you know the sections and the rhymes, the interplay between the MCs, between Cube and Easy, and the, the, the scratches. After you hear all of that, when it's off, what resonated was just that bottom, that bass, and the drive of it. I was like, "Yo, we gotta make some shit." Dude. Like, but still maintain our thing, you know.
4: So I was hearing the songs like as they were being created. Like I was, I heard you like Butter as they. You know as it was being created and jazz as it was being created. I remember like jazz is always my maybe my favorite song on that particular album. Um, again, because of the drop, you know what I'm saying, right? And so it, it was just like hearing what they were doing and like you know, seeing Ron Carter, you know, the famous jazz bassist, like at the studio, and you know, just kind of seeing you know, scenario being formed and like because Buster and those guys again, they were really young, Buster and those guys, were like maybe like right out of high school and they would be coming yeah. by and it was, it was just like kind of all this young youthful energy, um, that was, that was being created, but just, you just kind of knew, you know, it's just kind of like new, I'm sure if you, you know, if you haven't already, if you talk when you talk to Snoop or something, it's like at a certain point of doggy style, everybody around there was like, Oh, okay. Okay. This is, something, this is special. something special. exactly. And that was the same thing with Low End Theory. I, I can't point to any particular moments again because I was in the studio with them so much, but it was just like you would hear the records and hear the records develop, and and there was an excitement about what, them working with, working too and, like, you kept playing samples and, yo, listen to this, and then peak rock coming by, and, yo, you, you heard this, blah, 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 and large professor coming through. Yo, I found this record. And, you know, like, that's really what it was. Like, there was it a... Was, it was, it wasn't like q was he was doing all the work, but it was also kind of like collaborative and people were just kind of like loaning and giving because they knew what this thing was going to be. You know, like, you know, mm-hmm. Tretch would come by and he it like, it was just a thing. It was like the studio became like almost like a clubhouse like, where everybody would just come by and hang out and share music ideas and talk shit and gossip or whatever. And, you know, it was just, it was just a, it was just a good energy. I really believe in that. Like there's a, you can on, on great records. You can actually like hear the good energy, like when you hear like you know like songs in the key of life. You hear, you hear like they were really having a good time making this shit, man. You know what I'm saying? Like they, yeah. you can hear it, and it's hard to capture that. But if you capture that on record. It's, it's a special thing. And that's what low end was. It was just a special energy,
2: you know? So talk about the release. What was, uh, I knew there was high expectations, but talk about, uh, just how was it was at the label when that album came out and what the strategy was to promote it versus the first one. Yeah,
4: well, we wanted to get them on, you know, and, see, and again, people have to understand that you you know this because you was in the mix of it too. At that time, getting like a hip hop group, especially a group like Tribe, who wasn't like a, you know, pop group like pop artists like a hammer or you know vanilla Ice or whoever was out at that time, getting them on like Arsenio or getting them on like even any type of television thing besides, you know, Rap City or something was like a a big deal. Like it was and that that was our goal to try to we were gonna do all that BT stuff and, you know, the box and all this whatever was happening at the time. We were definitely gonna do all that. But we wanted to get them on Arsenio and a couple of the other shows that would get them exposed to a larger a broader audience who right. could hear this music because we knew the music was, was so good and it wasn't like a public enemy or like NWA was it was abrasive to some people. It felt good to everybody. So that was the strategy. And then a part of that strategy was the visuals. And they worked with a guy named Jim Swafield. He did all their videos. So their videos all had these kind of like really distinctive looks and they had these very creative ideas running through the videos. And so they didn't look like what the average hip hop video looked like at that time, and so we we were also kind of like trying to separate them creatively as well, while keeping you know their core, but just showing that these guys are different. These guys are not just regular old you know you know it wasn't that yeah. it was very you know like the jazz video and stuff like you know when or, or, you know or bugging out when you know like with, the eye, with the with yeah. the eye you know how the jazz video flips into bugging out like all that right. stuff was not being done then. You know, scenario right. when, you know, with right. Spike Lee and the, like it looks like it's a, on a on a, uh, a video player and all, like that stuff yep. was not being done then. So there was definitely a, 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 um, a purposeful goal to visually and musically get them like to be kind of, like you said, I guess highbrow for lack of a better term and a little different from what was going on at the time. And it worked. In the summer of
2: 1991, Tribe released their first single from their second album, Check the Rhyme. To say that anticipation levels were high is an understatement. They premiered the video on BET before they serviced the song to radio. It was like Tribe picked up where they last left off on the first album. But something was different. In the video for Check the Rhyme, they're back in their old neighborhood in Queens on top of a building with a crowd full of fans. Q-Tip would lead off on the song. But Fife was now taking on a larger presence in the group as they would both go back and forth with several witty lines. It was Batman and Robin on the mic. It was another dimension for the group that set the tone for their second album. On September 24th, 1991, the highly anticipated second album, Low End Theory, was released with a very unique album cover.
5: Tip was like, yeah, we should do something like the Ohio Players. And we was like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, the Ohio Players album covers featured women in a very tasteful way. So we wanted to borrow from that. But then... Be sort of like uh, double entendre because it's a low end theory, you know, and, 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 and so the way she's structured, you know, especially when you flip it over, you see her low end. The colors go back to the African roots and just the thought of blacks being on the lower end of the totem pole mm-hmm. society of America. And so there's there was a lot into that. And if you look on that album cover very closely, because everyone thinks it's a painting, it's an actual photo.
2: The beats were harder. The samples were cleaner, and the lyrical ascension of Fife made for a classic second album. Excursion sets the album off. Then we really get to the new wave of Fife on Bugging Out, and then he lulls you in with Butter, which is really his first all solo track. Butter was initially supposed to feature Q Tip as well, but Fife insisted it just be him. It became a major disagreement in the group, but eventually Tip acquiesced and agreed to provide the chorus and Butter became one of the most memorable tribe cuts of all times. Bottom line, Fife's Ascension was the storyline of the second album, but runner-up was the posse cut scenario with Leaders of the New School, which introduced a wider audience to Buster Rhymes, who absolutely murders this track, and single-handedly paved his way to a solo career.
3: Q-Tip and Buster, they've been cool since forever. I met Buster after the fact. We used to hang at each other's sessions just like if it was Latifah's or Day La's. It was a given that we were going to do something. You know what I mean? So it wasn't even planned. It was just, yo, know, come by the studio. We sitting there, they rolling blunts, whatever. Next thing you know, we all in the corner, like, Tip did a beat, throws it on, we all writing. So it wasn't even nothing like, Yo, we got to get in the studio and do this. And we knew he was going to do it just because we hung with each other all the time. Anyway, it was like a few groups that hung out together a lot. You know what I'm saying? You didn't have to call each other and say, yo, meet me here, meet me there. You knew they was going to be there. So it was us. It was leaders. It was Brand Nubian, Third Base, Jungle, De La, Latifah, Naughty. Everybody was going to meet up at the powerhouse in Manhattan and it's funny because it was so competitive nobody wanted each other to hear what they was writing and i went in the booth first because back then if you waited djs usually cut to the next song and they wouldn't hear you first i'm like i'm going first so i went in there late Mines. then everybody started going in going in going in and by the time buster went in there it was like damn B I'm glad I went already. I was crazy when he went in there, so we definitely knew it was going to be special, though. Scenario changed like four or five different times. Yo, Drez from Black Sheep was on it. Paz from Daylight was on it. Chris Lighty had a verse. But what we originally did ended up being what we came out with.
2: A better, stronger tribe was unleashed. The beats was just as hard as anything else out there, but different. Their single, We Got The Jazz, was also groundbreaking. The low-end theory would go gold and eventually certify platinum. Tribe was solidified as a major force in music. There was no sophomore jinx as they grew their fan base. There would be a two-year period of anticipation for the third album. It was also around this time where the Q-tip-Fife dynamic would become more intense. A lot of the darker side of their relationship played out on the Michael Rappaport Tribe documentary.
4: The thing about Tip and Fife, and I think they talked about it in the doc, but they they really, like, grew up together, like, I mean, and I mean Correct. from damn near infants. <laughs> like, they, like, lived yeah. and knew each other all their lives. So it wasn't like they met, like, we met in high school, or we met, no, they didn't know each other since they were, like, two years old or some dumb shit. Like right. So their relationship was very intricate because they were like brothers in a lot of ways. They're very different people, totally different people, but they were like brothers because of the ties that they had between them and Jerobe. They all grew up together like that. Ali, they didn't meet Ali till high school, as you know. Some cats you might have grew up with, and sometimes, you know, some cats you know, bunking on, beefing all the time, or people grow apart and come back together. And that's right. kind of what they did, but like on a on a big stage. So yeah. there was definitely like a deep love for each other, but it was also a, a sibling rivalry, for lack of better term with each other and and as fife escalated and escalated and it really did become not q-tip featuring a tribe called quest but it became like this thing where they were both like fife had his own fans kind of thing you know q-tip i believe you know i kind of felt like yo but this is my group like i put this together it's almost like sometimes you can ask for some shit and then when you get it it's like well i didn't really know like how it was going to actually right. turn out, and that's kind of what happened. Right. I think was like Q tip wanted Fife to step up because that was his man. He knew what, what Fife's capabilities were. But then when Fife did step up and and the accolades came, he was kind of like, oh, <laughs> not that much, you know. Right. It was kind of it was right. kind of that type of thing, and then seen the docket escalated into some shit that yeah. it should have never gotten to. But the, I believe that was the the root of a lot of it. You're listening to the Backstory
2: Podcast
4: a tribe called quest
2: for all those hip-hop aficionados out there grab the exclusive backstory podcast crossword t it's a t-shirt that celebrates some of the biggest backstory episodes i buy a lot of t-shirts and the one thing that drives me crazy is quality so first t-shirts are superior quality and it's a really cool design that celebrates some of the biggest backstory episodes Log on to GetTheBackstory.com right now and see for yourself. A portion of the proceeds from each shirt sold will be donated to Feeding America to help families in need. That's GetTheBackstory.com. Get the Backstory Crossword T now. And if you're new to the Backstory podcast, all of the episodes are historic time capsules. So go back and check out some of the other episodes and learn about the culture. GetTheBackstory.com.
5: Well, we go through constantly um, battling for what we believe in. You know, it's more than just, you know, plugging up your joint and doing your rhymes and doing your beats, man. It's, it's about, you're making money in this, you know, and you're, you're being marketed. So, the thing is to own as much as yourself as <laughs> possible, you know, and it's just, it's really, it's a tough thing to go through when you have no knowledge of it, you know. You're just coming in trying to make beats and all of that. So... Um, I, what I suggest is to pick up, you know, a couple of books. There's one book called um, This Business in Music, and there's another book written by Kashif. I don't remember the title, which is a good book. Yeah, I, I know and what you're talking about. That, like, he goes through the details of, of a lot of stuff, and that was written by an artist, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's, mm-hmm. like, he, he, he goes through all of the shakes and stuff that could possibly happen to you. Another thing is just to don't be afraid to... To confront people like Tribe Called Quest, when you see us on the street, don't think that, you know, we too good to be approached. You know what I mean? Right. We, we right. speak to people, we say what's up, and then don't be afraid to ask questions.
2: That's Ali Shahid Muhammad talking about the music business and lessons learned. Tribe members had a certain level of independence and entrepreneurship as they embarked on outside projects. That kind of spirit is commonplace with today's artists, but in that era, artists were artists who relied on album sales and shows to make a living. Tribe were creatives, and they seem to have a special touch with music. And a lot of other people wanted to work with Tribe.
7: You guys have created your own little style. Tell me a little bit about some of the um other products you guys are working on, because I know um, I, I like I know you did a uh, uh, Q-tip. You did something with Tiger. Yeah. And uh Fife, you doing something else with somebody too?
0: Yeah, Ali and I did like. Well, I did two songs with Shaquille O'Neal. You know what I'm saying? To help him come out and everything. And I have these groups that I'm about to try and put out. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I want to I wanna start a whole bunch of stuff, like production companies and stuff like that just to put other people on because there's so many people out on every corner whether it's Philly whether it's New York whether it's Atlanta on the corners not being seen right. you know what I'm saying and they deserve that chance mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying so that's what I'm trying to do well we got our own production company now right. you know what I'm saying so we're
1: looking for all types of artists if anybody hearing this you know what I'm saying I think they got the ill skills that's not the same this, that everything else is out here. That's definitely original and you got flavor. You know what I'm saying? You can um send it out to, you know what I'm saying? Whether you sing or you rhyme, if, just don't send me nothing if you don't feel it's, it's good. Wet. Please, send me something that's Make good. Make
0: sure it's your best. You
1: you know what what saying? time. Don't Word. rush
2: it. I asked them on the eve of their third album what made them successful.
5: Praise be to Allah. You know, first of all, that's you know the God of everything that goes on, um, and I guess just for us having respect for one another, and us, I guess. Being, being in the same mental kind of mind state, you know, we all, we all don't do certain things or we all do do certain things, you know, we just kind of like, we have an opinion but we understand and recognize to respect each other's opinions and stuff and, you know, not, not be, not walk around with hurt feelings when someone says, yo,
7: you know, X, Y, and Z about you, you know. That's, that's very important. Chemistry, I guess, is one one thing that keeps you guys together. Because a lot of groups ha- ha aren't staying together. They break up and they go through all these periods. There's
5: just- always someone somewhere in life. No matter whether you're doing music or not, there's always something going on that's going to try and bring you down. You know, and as long as you, you recognize, you know, the most high and just recognize who you are and inside to learn to, you know, it's going to be all right. As Fife star rose
2: after the release of Low End Theory, his health issues would start to get worse and affect how the group did album promotion and shows. There was also some tension because of how well Fife was taking care of himself, and if that contributed to his declining health.
4: You know, he had diabetes all his life, so that wasn't a new thing. And we'd always, you know, I mean, we by we I mean, you know, the group people at the label, we'd always be on him because Fife would eat terrible, but at that time he was a kid, you know, so his body could bounce back. You know, he was, you know, eating junk. I'm mean, the first person. <laughs> he's the first person that, um, introduced me to roadie because it was a roadie place across the street from jive. And he would always go there and bring his roadie to my office and would stink up. I go, what the fuck are you eating, man? Like, right, Cause he's right. Trini. He's, you know, he's He's like, Oh, no, it's roadie from right. my country. man. So he would eat bad and, you know, you know, not take care of himself the way he should. And we'd always, you know, get on him and stuff. And then, he had had like a bad incident at one point, and he had to go to the hospital, and it was touch and go kind of. But he came out of it, and I mean, he came to the office to see me, and he was kind of you know swollen up from the steroids and everything. And but we you know we had a great talk, and we kicked it like we always did. And as he aged, they were getting worse. You know, Fife was not a big guy; he's a small guy, so his body was getting beat up. You know, for lack of a better term, and he was a great, very, very happy, but the health complications. Kept kicking in, and, and the body, body just couldn't um, withstand
7: it. What is y'all like favorite joints out right now? What do y'all like? Um, what do y'all you group like? Jay the
0: Danger, right? Yeah, of course. You like mm, that's it. I like um, what else do you like? I like Eric Sermon's album.
8: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, what I'm saying '93 yeah. on the whole. I say I like the youngsters. You know, I like basically a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There's not too many things I don't like so far in '93.
7: You what about what about other? Uh, are you heavily into jazz as well? Definitely, I am, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I understand you're a big fan of my uncle McCoy Tyner. Yeah, that's your uncle. Yeah, yeah. Just led some job told you, you look like ago. him too. He said that you was a big fan.
1: You look, like him too. Oh yeah, man. And he, it's definitely influencing
7: in your album. And if you listen to the album, it's like it's got a lot of you know of that jazz appeal <laughs> yeah. to it. Yeah.
2: That's Tribe talking about the music they liked in 1993, right around the release of their highly acclaimed third album, Midnight Marauders. What was interesting about this time period, which was in November of 1993, hip-hop success had been shifting to other regions of the country, mainly the West Coast, and no longer exclusively to New York City. There was also a shift in rap generations as the bigger artists from the late 80s were trying to stay relevant and compete with a new onslaught of artists. A Tribe Called Quest were on a different level than most other hip-hop artists at this time. They weren't necessarily considered New York artists, even though that was what was happening at that time. Artists were defined by area of the country or coast that they were from. And Tribe was not interested in any of that narrative.
5: Put it simply like this. I, we don't own the East Coast, we don't own the West Coast, you know what I'm saying? So what the heck are we talking about? We representing, when well, we don't own nothing. And right. that's the line that Q-Tip dropped on the album. He's talking about how everybody's just representing this, representing that, and we don't own nothing. It's another person owning all this stuff, you know what I'm saying? So all it is, just, to me, it's just a modern-day slave mentality, you know what I'm saying? Just okay. To, 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 to divide people, you know. Shop Code Quest, we just worry about making music and living life, you know?
2: I mentioned earlier in the podcast that Tribe were the cool kids. Now, it had been two years since they released Low End Theory, and the label was preparing for their third album. The pressure was on to top Low End Theory, plus it had been two years, which might as well be 10 years in hip-hop. Artists were always putting out albums every year. So Tribe's slow-cooking Midnight Marauders led to even bigger fan
4: speculation. Yeah, it was a really interesting time because... You said you have the success of Low in Theory. They've grown their sound. They've grown their audience. They're, like you said, they're super, you know, superstars in rap now. Everybody loves them. All the girls love them. They're touring. They're making money and all this great shit. And so really the pressure's on. It's like Midnight of Aurora is not everybody's waiting on this one. The anticipation for this was the same as probably The Chronic or Doggy Style or whoever yeah. big records were coming out at, at that time. It was that level of anticipation. People really wanted to hear. West Coast, East Coast, didn't matter. Southern, it didn't matter. Everybody wanted to hear what this Midnight Marauders record was going to be. But you know what? To their credit, they felt like a little pressure, but they just kind of went in the studio and went to work, man. They really yeah. did. You know, they went, they went into the studio and, and went to work because I think by then – they had really mastered their chamber. A lot more people coming by the studio, a lot more supermodels, a lot more pretty, you know, pretty women, a lot more like, you know, stars and other rappers and producers and artists and everybody else from other labels. That album, Studio Sessions, really became like the place to be. Like you never know who you were going to see when you
2: walked in a room. Once again, Q-Tip was leading the production of Midnight Marauders, setting up shop in Fife's grandmother's basement. Even though Jirobi was no longer recording with the group, he still maintained a presence and would come to studio sessions, having an uplifting energetic presence during this creative process. And once again, the sound was amazing, and it differed from the other two albums, which is something the fans appreciated. Tribe always kept us intrigued.
1: Midnight Marauders was meant to have that sheen that it has. I thought that, um, if anything, it was meant to be boomier in the tradition of low-end, but it was always meant to have like a nice sheen to that record. Because if you listen to low-end theory, like a lot of that sizzle at 15K stuff, like for the 8K stuff, is really hard to hear it. Maybe on the remastering, but when you listen to the original, like a lot of that top is muddled we, we did a lot of that record on underneath but when we got to midnight marauders we were on the ssl and it had a little bit more sizzle up there so it just has the, the top it just has a little bit more sheen
2: we got an early taste of the album in october 1993 when tribe released their first single award tour which was an instant hit on the radio and only amped up a fan base waiting on this album. Then on November 9th, 1993, Midnight Marauders was released. The same day as Wu-Tang Clan's classic debut album, Enter the 36 Chambers. It was also during this time that fans were counting down to the release of the most anticipated
4: hip-hop album in history, Doggy Style from Snoop Dogg, which was coming out two weeks later. I remember just having like, you know, kind of long, deep discussions with Barry and with Chris Lighty and uh, some other people at the label, Tom Caraba. uh some other ones just about what the singles are gonna be and it was interesting because by then they had gotten to the point where we were almost like we had our pick and choose of what we wanted to do. and you know, we want, we didn't have mm-hmm. to sell them anymore. And then that, at this point it was like we're definitely getting a source cover, which was meant a big deal. We're definitely getting a Rolling Stone piece, which is huge for a hip hop group back for, then. For a hip hop. Massive yeah. back then. We're definitely getting Arsenio, which is again massive, with like, all these right. things that we fought to get people to do on the low-end theory album it's like yo i'm telling you man just give them a chance kind of thing now it's flipped and it's like we're gonna do this then we're gonna do the mtv thing we're gonna do blah blah blah. now we're not gonna do that we're gonna do now we're not gonna do that we had our pick and choose of who who and what we wanted to do with them was about expanding that base again so now it's like maybe you get on the tonight show now or, you know, the, you know, back back then, or Johnny Carson, or something like that, and maybe get on, mm-hmm. you know, some of the other big big television shows and general market the stuff. General market stuff that hip hop groups just very rarely got got a chance to do. Um, and so that All became right. that was the big marketing plan. The energy that they had, like everybody wanted to work with them. So it was it, it, it was it was a blessing that it was never a fight to, to get anybody to do anything for them, or it became like a fight. Almost the other way was like, yo, oh, they uh, they already, we already got somebody writing the Rolling Stone piece. Sorry, you know, like people wanted to write a piece on them or wanted to do a photo shoot with them or like they wanted to to do everything with them. So now you really, you get groups that get big, so people kind of like have to work with them because it's a big right. artist or whatever. But I don't know if it's a genuine excitement. It's just like, oh shit, well I got to deal with so and so because he's fucking huge, right? But with tribal right. was people really being like. Nah, I want to do this from the heart because yeah. I love. They life. were likable. It was so likable.
2: And they weren't assholes. Not at all, There man. were a lot of assholes in that era. They were not assholes. Exactly. So, what was a Midnight Marauder?
1: Well, it's just talking about, you know what I'm saying? How we usually listen to our music, you know what I'm saying? You know, hip hop, I mean, hip hop has We listen to music basically at night, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of our. Uh, Living is doing through the night. You know, what I'm saying. When you maraud, it means you loot, right? like. But in our case, we just looting for ears, basically. You know what I'm saying?
2: The new creative wrinkle added to Midnight Marauders was the computerized sounding tour guide throughout the album.
1: Yeah, you know, okay. we just trying to experiment do little different things so your ears won't be used to the same format. You know, what I'm saying. You know, what I'm saying. So we just thought we do the old AT and T operator type voice, like.
2: That was actually Jive Record Secretary Laurel Dan, whose voice was digitized and presented this character based on the female silhouette on the album cover, which featured a who's who in hip-hop up until that point
7: All wearing headphones But so On the front of the album You have a um, Like a collage Of a lot of rappers Right You took a lot of pictures So right. how many How many versions Of the album Is going to be out Or um, covers rather Three Three mm-hmm. So that, that's like Kind of a collector's item All you people out there So that means Go out and buy three of them Yep. So
1: like,
7: <laughs> y'all can go triple flat Nah, somewhere.
1: we cool with one, <laughs> You know what I'm saying
7: Yeah But yeah That's, that's, that's kind of fat How y'all gave props Out to everybody Because a lot of people Don't you know A lot of people Don't do that I mean they say What's up I feel, it's feel like
1: it, It's out. time man It's 1993, man. You know what I'm saying? Just trying to create the area of unity. Others can follow if
4: they want. They decided via the album cover to include all of hip hop on this record. Like, and there were multiple album covers because they had to get everybody in with the headphones Yeah, on. exactly. So we had, a, we yeah. had these photo, shoot, uh, photo shoots. People were coming that weren't even invited. Like, we had like a master right. list of people we asked to come, and all of them came. Right. But then like, it would be people were just showing up like, oh, yo, I want to be on the album cover. You know what I'm saying? Like, but how do you say no right. to this one or that one? They, they are. You know, star. So like all these people came down to the album cover, and it, it, was, it was just genius how they do it because they, they have like, Sweet Tea. is on the album cover because she's from right. the round the way queens right, we got to represent right. sweet tea you know what i'm saying but right, then you right. got all these you know you got cold crush and you got you know all these you, know, all, you got two shorts you got the all these people from all over on this album cover it was almost like this is hip-hop's album
2: the midnight marauders album was right on time everything we anticipated after two years
4: Ooh, you know what me and chris light we we used to argue we argued about to argue today, our, our song was midnight the night is on my mind, bro. Me and Chris yeah. Light, we, we used to just, um. that was our record. Like, that was, y'all, they're that record. You know what I'm saying? Right. That was our record. And then um, probably Lyrics to Go. I was just, I was waiting <laughs> for you to say that. Because that, <laughs> that is the most illest, <laughs> illest sample, just waiting. the way that he looped. Mini ripping. Oh, my God. And people, and people to this day, a lot of people don't realize that that's not an instrument. That's her singing yeah. at that high note. Sustaining yeah. that note like
2: that—it's so almost hypnotic. Hypnotic. Like hypnotic. You could listen it was- to it and and be oh. lost in it. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Yeah, L- lyrics to go was my favorite off of that yeah, album.
4: Awesome! Oh my God, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Of course, award tour. Yeah, it was an incredible album.
2: Lyrics to go is my all-time favorite Tribe track. But then you had Electric Relaxation, which was another song you would get lost in. Eight million stories is Fife on the storytelling game. Clap your hands. Keep it rolling with the large professor who is still an underrated MC and producer. If you are not up on the one and only main source album, you should do your homework. On Keep It Rolling, Fife, Tip, and LP were brilliant. Another track that stood out was The Chase Part 2, which featured a Bismarck sample. And that beat, ugh. Then there was Oh My God in the closeout song, God Lives Through. Midnight Marauders cap one of the greatest three album runs by an artist in history. If this was a movie, then Midnight Marauders would be the perfect ending.
4: But it wasn't. So what the hell happened with Tribe? What happened was, man, the stuff we talked about earlier with Tiff and Fife got more intense. Fife wanted to kind of do a solo album at that point. We actually started working on was as A&R Person. We started working on it. We never completed it, though. But that caused the rift. At the same time, Tip decided to bring his cousin Consequence um, yep. into the group more, which caused more rift between he and Fife because Consequence is taking spots from Fife. You know what I'm saying? Whenever Consequence rhymes, that could have been a spot that Fife rhymed in. I, I like got you know. I, I have no, you no. Know, I, I understand like Consec's like, yo, I, this is my shot. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going to take it. Right. right. So I have no, no issue with what Consec. But. It just became weird, and the, you know the group politics became really weird, and the energy got off. And you know Ali's always been the peacemaker, right? So he's yeah. trying to you know figure it out, and he's trying to get these guys to figure it out together. And it's just again, I I know it sound, I sound like a broken record and I sound corny or whatever, but that energy word I keep constantly use in this conversation that we're having is really important. It's real, and and when the when decides to kind of force consequence. On to a tribe called Quest, which by now was a super group. Right. It threw the energy off. It sounds kind of cliche or whatever, but that's the truth. It threw the energy off and it threw Fife off. And once it went off, it never got back on
2: there was also them branching off. So Ali started branching off with, um, Lucy Pearl, uh, Tony, Tony, yeah. Lucy Pearl Mm -hmm. with, with, um, Raphael Sadiq. And then they were actually producing stuff. Yeah.
4: Yeah. They were producing it. And their album, the Lucy Pearl album with them and Dawn Robinson, that was a great album. And Ali started doing other stuff and,
2: um, and, then, and then you know, Q-Tip did Nas, uh, yeah. Nas's debut album. Yeah. He did, you know, he did One Love, yeah. which was amazing. amazing yeah. and, and and then he did something for Mob Deep. So yeah, yeah like, he, he, he,
4: he 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 actually people don't realize this. The the Mob Deep album, he is no credit. Right. But he actually executive right. produced that album and he mixed the whole out because Q-Tip is an amazing mixer. Like he make your record right. sound dumb. You know what I'm saying? So like he actually mixed. Right. The whole record. He was given havoc samples. Like he was like the third member of of Mobb Deep on that on that classic right. album. That's why that album. Yeah. And I I love Mobb Deep, so this is no slight in them or anything because yeah. they made other albums yeah. which are incredible. But that's why that album sounds just a little yeah. different because it was because no. Q Tip was very involved. So like he started doing that type of stuff because again they became a super group. So he, he started getting. Other opportunities to make more money, and so why wouldn't you know what I'm saying? So, right, um, and that's kind of fight, kind of got into the, the sports because he's a huge sports fan. He started getting into kind of sports thing a little bit, and so like mm-hmm. they they also had other interests that started to kind of you know tug at them as well. And I don't want to make this conversation like I want to be clear, and I know you don't think this, but I want to be clear, like I'm not trying to like dog Q tip, like like oh you shouldn't have worked. Right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm right. saying, but when he when he did it it threw the energy off, you know, and that's, right. that's that coupled with outside forces, you know, it just kind of pulled at the group. So it's interesting, as big an uh, uh, impact as Tribe has had, I only count like the first three albums as the impact because the I, I fourth and fifth, yeah. got, by fifth, it was really, like you said, it was yeah. really like, what the fuck, right. You know, like it was right. really right. weird right. by then.
2: After the release of Midnight Marauders, we would get another hiatus of the group as they worked on other projects, Putting that tribe sound on other artists and we discussed in one of our interviews and they were actually soliciting artists while we interviewed.
0: I did two songs with Shaquille, O'Neal, you know what I'm saying, to help him come out and everything. And I have these groups that I'm about to try and put out. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I wanna I wanna start a whole bunch of stuff like production companies and stuff like that. Just to put other people on because there's so many people on the corners not being seen. Right. You know what I'm saying? And they deserve that chance. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. Well, we got our own production company
1: now. Right. You know what I'm saying? So we're looking for all types of artists. If anybody hearing this, you know what I'm saying? think they got the ill skills that's not the same that there, everything else is out here. That's definitely original and you got flavor. You know what I'm saying? You those. can um send it out to, you know what I'm saying, to me out in Queens, New York. Whether you sing or you rhyme, if just don't send me nothing if you don't feel it's,
9: it's good. Wet.
1: Please, send me something that's Make good.
0: Make sure it's
1: your best. You Take your time. Don't rush it.
2: One artist that got that Tribe Touch was a newbie from Queens who would deliver his debut classic album five months after midnight, Nas.
1: Nas was just like you automatically knew. Well I heard him on the on the barbecue, but then Large played me his shit. Like I was like, cool, this dude is crazy, you know what I'm saying? So he came out by the crib and we blew a little something. It was summer or whatever. And I was like, so how you trying to approach it? He was like, nah, God, you know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to get that shit, that shit that you be fucking with, God. You know what I'm saying? A very Nas Jazz man type shit. You know what I'm saying? I was like, true, true. I was like, man. When we had the session and we went, we was in battery recording in battery, and he just started spitting that shit. He spit it in the room first for everybody. Must have been about 10, 10 of us in there. And he spit that shit. The room was like silent and the speakers was rocking and he was just like, ah, like spitting that shit over that shit. I was like, man, it was crazy. And I had really nest the drums yet, but when I heard that rhyme, he did it, and then when i after he laid it, and then I pumped the, the drums up, it was just right. It was just like one of those perfect sessions.
2: The creative energy of the group was changing. Fife moved to Atlanta. Q-Tip was working on several projects, and he added his cousin Consequence to the group. Their production crew, the UMA, was created, which featured Ali Shahi Muhammad. Q-Tip, and JD, a.k.a. J Dilla from the Detroit hip-hop group Slum Village. He was an up-and-coming producer with a relentless work ethic and style, and this would change the sound and creative process of how they made music.
5: When, you know, the creator blessed us to to get Dilla's demo, that was just like, he came at the right time because we were at a point where, not that everything was routine, but there were certain aspects of our life that was just so routine and you you need you just need we needed something to push us a different direction you know how we kept going this way on only to create a nose and i think that's why Dilla came in and gave us that like a uh, sort of resuscitated us a little bit it's like he was inspired by us but he had his own everything you know his own universe and yeah he was in our world but it was more like we were in his world because it was just like how's he coming and do this so quick? Like we're sitting here for hours just, you know, chopping, doing all this. And Dilla would just come in and boom, 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 and go back upstairs. And you're like, we've been sitting here for weeks and months trying to achieve that, what he just did in minutes, you know? So um, that was fun because it was sort of like a a competitive kind of pushing each other on
4: in a very positive way. It became not fun anymore. That's really what happened. And you know, even when getting those guys together became harder to do, like even like it was like a photo shoot. It was like a huge thing to get all three of them. Like, There's almost like, you know, a lot of groups to get to the point where like it's three groups, three people. The example is because so it's like three separate camps. They're not a group anymore. It's like these are tips people. These are these people. These are fights people. And, you know, and, and Lighty's doing what he could do. But Lighty, by that point, also had blown up. Violator right. had blown up. So he didn't have the, that kind of one on one time that he had years ago he had other big ass artists to deal with so he couldn't right. be you know on them 24 hours a day like before so they had some you know some things they needed to work out and they didn't quite like being around each other as like they used to
2: they started recording their fourth album Beats Rhymes and Life in 1995 i ran into Ali and Fife in Atlanta at the Gavin convention in february of 1996 which during the 90s was an important convention for the radio and record industry, but their hip hop sessions and awards, led by the great Tambisa Mshaka, was the biggest hip hop industry event of the year. So I had a chance to catch up with them six months before the Beats album was released. As fans, we had no idea of the changes they were going through. We would just amp for the next album. But you can hear about what they were working on and the first hint about a potential five solo album.
0: We've been working on the fourth venture. It's called Beach Bomb Life. It's coming out late April. You know what I'm saying? So you
7: know, and enjoy. And, and what's the first single? When is that coming? And what's it uh, called? The
0: title: The Hop. And that'll be out April.
7: The album is made. Okay. So the title of the album is Beach Rhyme, and Life. Okay, so what's been going on with you guys, man? It's been it's been almost two years, right, since the last yeah. album came out? basically two years. Midnight Marauders. Yeah, it's been a two-year pregnancy on um, trying to deliver this walkout LP as well as, you know, take care of other businesses. Okay. We got production deals. We got, we got A&Rs now, you know. Yeah, and, and you guys have done, uh, you, you know, like, remixes galore. Remixes. You, and Q-Tip. For Bage. For so many people, man. Craig, man. I mean, there's a
5: lot of Y'all been keeping busy. DeAngelo's joint we did. About to do DeAngelo's new joint. Tony, Tony, Tony's
7: new joint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of people. Shove um, Rock, we're about to do. Um, Janay. It's a lot of things going on. Okay, now, um, I know y'all got the new album and everything. Working album. On. So what's up? Y'all going to be doing a tour, a big tour or something? Hopefully this summer, right right, with the release of the LP. Um, we'll go out. we also going to bring out with us um,
5: Q-Tips' cousin. His name is Consequent. Uh-huh. He's a new member. Right, you got a new member of the group. Yeah. Okay. He's not really, you know, he's not a member he of the group. Had- but he's
7: down. He got his own thing coming on, you know, so... We're trying to do things. Okay, yeah. now, Fife, tell us a little bit about this album, man. Who's going to... Any special guests on this album? Constant Aquinas, man. That's it? <laughs> <laughs> That's special guests on the album. We got okay. Faith up on
0: there. Okay. We got Tammy Lucas up on there. Uh-huh. You know what I'm
7: saying? All so, produced by, by you, Shahid. Nope.
0: Yeah. They have a little production deal. It's Ali, my man, J.D. from Detroit, who did the Far Five track, Running. Oh, word. Dad, he did some of Buster's new stuff coming out. Soon. Right, right. I heard and about it. And along that. with Tip, they have this little production team called the UMA. Uh-huh. It means brotherhood. Okay. You know what I'm saying, So right. You know what I'm saying? They're about to produce Consequences album. All right. Mm-hmm. about to produce my album. Oh, you going to do a solo
7: album? Yeah. Oh, you know uh, when, when is going. that coming? Who knows? But <laughs> It's coming.
2: You know what was interesting about this particular Gavin convention? in 1996 it was the ascension of the fugees who had just released their second album the score that week and performed and they were the talk of the conference no one saw the fuji second album coming i like to share info like this to really give you a picture of what was happening at that time there was a whole new wave of artists coming as tribes started to decline they were three years removed from midnight marauders and again That is a lifetime with fickle hip-hop fans. Also at this Gavin convention in 96, which was in Atlanta, Busta premiered his debut single, Woo Ha, which took off like a rocket, leading to the March 1996 release of his debut album, The Coming. And the Uma, Q-Tip, JD, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad, had production credits on several tracks on that album. Tupac released All Eyes On Me that same week, and will be shot and killed later that fall, then drop a second album, Machiavelli. In June of that year, Jay-Z released his debut classic album, Reasonable Doubt. Nas released his second album, It Was Written, and led with a huge single, If I Ruled the World, with Lauryn Hill. That was on every radio station in America. De La Soul released Stakes as High at the top of July. The winds of hip-hop had changed dramatically in 1996. It really is a pivotal year in the culture. Tribe will release their first single once again, and then several weeks later they will release... Beats, Rhymes, and Life.
7: Now, tell everybody about Beats, Rhymes, and Life. Now, we was talking on a conference call, you said that this was your favorite album out of all of them that have, that have been out. So what's what makes it the favorite? And how does this top Midnight Marauders? How does this top the first joint, which I think is the classic joint right there?
8: Right.
7: Well, in my opinion, you know what I'm saying, I always gravitate each album I, I
1: tend to like, you know what I'm saying? This one I like just because it represents us. Filling our own shoes and, and, and finding out who we are, you know what I'm saying? It's a real comfortable piece, you know what I'm saying? And it's poignant for what it represents to me, which is the spirituality aspect during a time when you know
2: what i lacking. Fans were excited to hear a new Tribe album, but there was so much good hip-hop happening in that moment, and it was tough for them to stand out. The second single was stressed out with Faith Evans, and this album despite hitting number one on the charts and going platinum, did not have the usual impact with fans. Some would say the magic was gone. However, looking back at that moment, we, meaning us consumers, hip-hop lovers, were overloaded with good projects. In earlier years, you just wouldn't get that much quality music at the same time. Historically, 1996 was one of the greatest years in hip-hop. Q-Tip was a much sought out producer behind the scenes, and he would continue to produce. He even made a beat for the Notorious B.I.G.'s Life After Death album. Big loved the track, but the album had already been completed. So Q-Tip used that track to start the creative process for Tribe's fifth album, The Love Movement, which would be released in 1998. A few months before it was released, the group announced that they were officially breaking up. Just like that, the groundbreaking group that had legions of loyal fans was done. Unlike most other groups, Tribe did not do a lot of touring. So there's some mysticism around them. As much as I love Tribe, I never saw them perform live.
5: We would drive our managers crazy because we didn't want to go on the road. Like for us, we knew it was all about the music. The music is the most important thing. And if your music, if you get the music right, then you can always go out, you know, and And deliver and touch people and and have that sort of experience. But if the music isn't correct and it's like everything that you're doing is for nothing. So that was more of I think us really um establishing our culture of saying like we have to put music out. We have to just stay in the studio and record. And there was a lot that we wanted to do with the brand. After the group broke up, their influence
2: would only get bigger as they embarked on other projects. Q-Tip would sign a solo deal with Arista Records and in 1999 would release his first single, the classic song, Vibrant Thing, followed by Breathe and Stop. Produced by JD and Q-Tip, the album would go on to sell
4: 700,000 copies. Q-Tip was now a solo star. The thing about Vibrant, I'm not talking about the record now, but the visual. In the visual, Q-Tip is very like fashion forward in the video. Very like wearing a flat shit like a leather cape. He's like your leather poncho rather. like He's on some flat shit. I remember people coming to me and be like, "Yo, what's up with your boy? Like, why he dressing like that?" I was like, "Oh, y'all niggas just didn't know. That was always been him. Right. That's who he right. is. Like, he, yeah. you guys thought he was just a meek little. No, 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 no. Yeah, he's on some super fly shit. He likes loves the women. He's models and all. That's who he is." Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what I mean, he, Roll, r- rolling around with Leo too. That's yes, what I'm mean? saying. Rolling DiCaprio around with Leo, who was, DiCap- that's who he is. D- yeah. yeah, and I'm not saying it is to be disparaging. I'm just saying, like, right. I, I knew because I was close. So I was like, so when I, right. I'm saying all I have to say when I saw vibrant and breathing stop. Like I'm like, I was kind of happy for him because I'm like, you can finally show people who you really are, and you don't have to be, you tip from native tongues. You can be yeah. you. It was free, man.
2: Ali Shaheed Muhammad would form a supergroup, Lucy Pearl, with Raphael Sadiq from the very successful R&B group, Tony, 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 and Dawn Robinson, who was a part of one of the biggest female groups of the 1990s, in Vogue. They would release a top-five R&B single called Dance Tonight, and the album would go gold. Fife would release a solo project in 2000 called Ventilation, including a single, Flawless, in which he took a few shots at Q-Tip, whose solo project was a 180-degree departure from Tribe. This added another dent in their relationship. Fife was also dealing with a much more difficult circumstance, his health.
3: Man, I wouldn't wish renal failure on anybody. It's tough. It's definitely tough. But if you enjoy living, you're going to do everything in your power to keep on living. You know what I mean? Bottom line, I don't care what it is that you're going through. You're going to fight. You know what I mean?
2: Things would go quiet on the tribe front for a few years. One of the other sources of tension in the group was Q-Tip's lack of a desire to tour with them. They were turning down huge paydays over the years. At the same time, Fife's health continued to decline and bills were piling up. In 2003, Q-Tip and Fife would piece things up a bit to record a song for the Violator Project. As former manager, the late Chris Lighty built his own legacy in the music business. That particular song would never be released. They all continued to work on other projects during the 2000s, and Fife's diabetes would get worse. Then he eventually needed a kidney transplant, which he received two, the first from his wife. In 2006, they reunited as a touring act and hit the road. And one of the reasons they were able to come together was to make money to help Fife with his medical bills. In 2011, actor and Super Tribe fan Michael Rappinport would direct a documentary about the group, which took us all inside the tension between Q-Tip and Fife during this touring period. The ugliness played out on screen. They would reunite once again in 2015 to celebrate the 25th anniversary of their debut album with a reissued version which featured different remixes from artists that were fans. They performed on a Tonight Show for the first time in years, which inspired them to put differences aside and start recording the final album in secrecy. The album, We Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service. Sadly, during this time recording, on March 16, 2016, Five Dog would pass away at 45, stunning family and friends, and devastating his bandmates. When I met Leak
5: Ice... <laughs> Sorry, Y'all remember that? <laughs> he definitely was a little gritty something off the New York streets. <laughs> and he wholly represented so much of the character of someone who's small but mighty. He was a survivor from birth. Twin. preemie. So out the gate, he's a warrior. Yes! Yeah.
0: Yeah.
5: A Scorpio warrior. Woo! People misunderstand sometimes the power of that little insect and see it as threatening because it's it's poisonous. But no, let me just say for Fife's persona, he was poisonous with words and not only in a rhyme style, just, you know, if he really was intimate with Fife, he would not hold his tongue. (laughs) But that's because that little guy, warrior, mightier, has so much love because he loved so deeply that in defense of it, it hurts some people. And he's not a hurtful, malicious dude. Fife is the only person that I've ever known who won.
0: Yes, he did. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He won. We went to ESPN. That's what he wanted to do. Most of his life, I mean, you know. We got to see a game in the garden in the box because he hadn't been in the garden. The uh, Most important thing, we got to, uh, to hang. and and, and repair you know what I'm saying and um these are groups groups of shit and that's just bullshit you know what I'm saying um that's not what we are you know what I'm saying uh that's her job you know what I'm saying but um
1: my sister took me to my first block party on 119th avenue with right in the back of Fife's grandmother's house I was six so my memory I, i'll never forget it and that was like my first introduction and the first person i i spoke to about it the next day was fife i was like yo was you over at your grandmother's house did you hear all that music the, 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 they was playing over there da, da, da. he was like nah i was over there uncle like what happened what happened and we would just like talk about music on the phone and you hear grandma in the background like money boy you better get off that phone with that john you've been seeing him every day <ancies> My goodness! What else I want to talk about? And my mother in the back. Get off that phone! You know, and <clears throat> that was our thing. We were just music.
2: Tribe would go on to finish the project without Fife and release the album on November 11, 2017, to great fanfare. Similar to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Earth, Wind and Fire, Jay Z, Bruce Springsteen. Tribe's legacy will be one of the most innovative, creative forces in music, which will live on with fans for generations.
4: I think your analogy of like the Beatles or maybe like the Rolling Stones or whatever of that era, I think that's kind of it. Like they, you know, because again, I'm not going to count album four and five. So album one, two, three, in actuality, was a short run. It was only 89 and 93. It was five years. Five years. Yeah. Five year run. Again, I'm not counting the last two. So, but it
2: was also a renaissance period in hip hop too. So that exactly. it, you had to have that add that to it. Yes, yeah, so it
4: was a renaissance period in hip hop. The West Coast, like you said the West Coast is opening up with Snoop and Train, yeah. those guys, Dog Pound and all that stuff. It wasn't East Coast West Coast beef at that point. So East Coast West Coast thing was at that point still love fest. You know, it was just like y'all are dope, we're dope. The only people that were kind of on the outside looking at that point was the South. But the, as far as the East right. Coast West Coast, it was it was they they I think they helped bridge that gap, and they just they have so many sons and daughters yeah. in this in this game. You I mean, not count you know White and Lauren Hill in them, obviously Outcast. You know, there's yep. so many groups that are like you know the earth, even now guys like Earth Kanye Kanye even got, the younger guys yeah. now the Earth Gang and JID. Like, all these yeah. guys are like yeah. direct lines from yeah. that tribe thing. You know, so they they're like the fathers of a whole movement, which is the roots that they laid are still spreading out. Thanks for listening and supporting this episode. Tell a
2: friend about the Backstory Podcast. Follow us on IG at GetTheBackstory and on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. The Backstory Podcast is a Pod is Good production. Created, written, and produced by yours truly, Colby Cole. On the next Backstory episode, the story of the late
5: Great easy e priority was it happened to be the split of the group NWA
0: because mm-hmm. uh, they was interfering in contractual agreements
7: so they were trying to split y'all up yeah basically they they did well I
0: mean they did split <laughs> y'all up but so- there was a pain you know like trying to pay dre under the table mm-hmm. trying to get ice cube to split up and you know everybody' you know would with that went down.
2: For all those hip-hop aficionados out there, grab the exclusive Backstory podcast crossword tee. It's a t-shirt that celebrates some of the biggest Backstory episodes. I buy a lot of t-shirts, and the one thing that drives me crazy is quality. So first, t-shirts are superior quality. And it's a really cool design that celebrates some of the biggest Backstory episodes. Log on to getthebackstory.com right now and see for yourself. A portion of the proceeds from each shirt sold will be donated to Feeding America to help families in need. That's GetTheBackstory.com. Get the Backstory crossword T now. And if you're new to the Backstory podcast, all of the episodes are historic time capsules. So go back and check out some of the other episodes and learn about the culture. GetTheBackstory.com.